As I was reading um, this chapter um, just a few minutes ago, um, I was thinking, uh, as we're doing some of the earlier verses, um, that it was a shame we weren't lingering longer on some of them. There's uh, some wonderful truths uh, expressed uh, in the first half of this chapter. Uh, perhaps another time uh, we'll be able to look at some of those. Um, but we're trying to go through this um, series on Hebrews um, fairly uh, swiftly so that we can get an idea of the theme and the um, argument of the whole book. And um, I decided that I would focus on some of the verses around the middle of this chapter. Um, because in many ways, like chapter 6, there are some scary verses in this chapter. In fact, some of these verses, verses 26 uh, to 29 in particular, uh, were verses I struggled with very much when I was first uh, coming to Christ. Uh, I was worried that I could not be forgiven, and I was very fearful uh, because of what verses 26 uh, onwards had to say. And so those are the verses I particularly want us to try and understand better this evening, uh, to hopefully uh, help us heed the warning that is given, but also to uh, draw encouragement from what the author of Hebrews tells us in these verses. Um, the scariest verses, perhaps, are verses 26 and 27 where the author of Hebrews says, if, verse 26, we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And when we first read those verses, when we first hear those verses, what it sounds like is that if we deliberately sin after we've become a believer, then there's no more hope. Uh, you've blown it. God's forgiven you, but if you deliberately sin after God has forgiven you, then there's no more sacrifice for sins. You've had your chance. That's what it initially sounds like to many when, those read, when they read these verses. The problem with that is, of course, if that's true, then every believer, without exception, is in big trouble. Because the sad reality is every believer commit deliberate sins sometimes. That's not a good thing. Uh, that's not okay. But it is the reality. Um, I'm sure I don't really need to prove that to us. I'm sure each and every one of us here this evening who is a believer can, doesn't have to search their mind very far to see times where we have deliberately done things which we know are wrong after we have become a Christian. 
So what do these verses mean? What is the author of Hebrews trying to tell us? Because it cannot mean that there is no hope for a believer who commits a deliberate sin. There are characters in the New Testament even who committed deliberate sins after coming to a knowledge of the truth. Um, We could list them. So what does it mean? Well, fortunately, we are given an idea of what is meant by these verses if we read on. And that's a good principle, by the way. Uh, If you ever read a verse which you don't understand or you're struggling with, uh, it's generally a good advice to keep on reading. (laughs) Keep reading and you often get light, you often get clarity on the verses that you read to start with. And this is how the author of Hebrews continues in verse 28. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace? What the author of Hebrews is talking about is something deeper, something even more serious than simply a deliberate sin. Deliberate sin is not okay, as we've said. Uh, That is still sin. But that is not merely what the author of Hebrews is speaking of here. And I think perhaps the easiest way to uh, explain what the author of Hebrews is saying is to use an illustration. And it's one which I've used before, but I trust you won't mind me using it again. Uh, Imagine a soldier in the army. Now, no soldier is perfect. Uh, Every soldier, from time to time, will do things which their commanding officers disapprove of which their commanding officers tell them they should not do. Uh, Perhaps on occasion they will speak behind the back of their sergeant major or someone above them. Perhaps they might treat their fellow soldiers in ways which they should not. Uh, In lots of different ways they may show themselves to be imperfect soldiers. But that is different to them being a traitor. Uh, You do not shoot, I don't think you shoot them at all now, but in times past, you would not shoot an imperfect soldier, but you may shoot a traitor, someone who deserts. Do you see how there's a distinction between those two sets of people? Both are in the wrong. Uh, Neither of those positions are good. The soldier shouldn't be saying the things they're saying or doing the evil things they're doing but that does not necessarily make them a traitor. And it's the same of a Christian. We all do things that we should not do sometimes. And God will often discipline us for those things as a parent disciplines their child. But that does not mean that we are not God's child. It does not mean that we are a rebel against him. 
there is a difference between being a rebel and simply being imperfect and a work in progress. And that is what he was just talking about here when he describes verse 29 of how um, in the Old Testament, when someone deliberately rejected Moses and rejected Moses' law, which God had given to him, their penalty was death. But again, not everyone who sinned in the Bible was considered worthy of death for that particular sin. Otherwise, sacrifice would never have existed. Uh, There are all sorts of sins that people could commit which they could offer a sacrifice for, which the death penalty was not attached to. But for rebellious sin, for sin which rejected the covenant, for sin which threw God behind their, when they threw God behind their back, that was sin which was worthy of death. So what that means for us is that we need to examine ourselves about who is truly king of our lives. Because that is the key question. Are we simply imperfect servants or are we rebels against God? If you are deliberately walking in some sin, uh, if there's some area of your life and you are repeatedly choosing the wrong path instead of the path which God tells us to follow, Uh, if you are consistently listening to your own desires and ignoring Christ's instructions, then you have to ask yourself the question, who is your king? Who are you, if I can use the word, fighting for? Are you truly on Christ's side Or are you really a traitor? There comes a point where our deliberate sinning demonstrates that we are actually on the other side. Just like there comes a point when a soldier is ignoring his own side so much and is helping the other side so much that they have to say, you are simply a traitor. You are not on our side at all. And that's what he was warning against. He's warning against a pattern of behavior which is turning our backs on God. And he says, if that is you, then you have not been saved by God. You are not a member of his family. You are in danger of judgment. Because the Bible makes absolutely crystal clear. Uh, We're not saved by doing good, by not sinning, but God saves us in order that we might do good. It's that way around. Um, God doesn't see the good things we do and decide to save us. Instead, God decides to save us so that we might be able to do good. But what that means is, if you are not increasingly and progressively over time, producing good fruit, then perhaps you have not been saved. You'll be like someone who um, is in a river, claiming they are saved from drowning, even as they are spluttering in the water. 
if you're still in the water, if you're still swallowing that water, then you are not saved. You are saved when you are found safely on the bank. And it's the same for a believer. We can know to some extent if we are saved, if that's, if God is producing good fruit within us. As Jesus himself said, you can know a tree by its fruits. Not because we are saved by the fruits, but because the fruits are the, what is produced by our being saved. Um, if you're convinced that you've got an apple tree in your garden and year after year it's producing pears, you've probably not got an apple tree. <laughs> you've got a pear tree because a tree is known by its fruits. And likewise, if someone who claims to be a believer is not bearing good fruit, but they're bearing instead thorns and thistles and weeds, there comes a point where you have to say, this person has not been saved at all. And the warning of these verses applies. Hebrews is telling us, if you are simply walking a life of rebellion against God, but trying to claim that you are a Christian at the same time, he says that's not who Christ died for. Christ's sacrifice is not for such people. Uh, you can't sin, as the Bible puts it, with a high hand, saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, but Christ is going to pay for my sin. That is to completely misunderstand what salvation is. And that is what we are being warned of in these passages. That's why later on in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author tells us there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Not because we're saved by holiness, but because we are saved to holiness. So that's the challenge of these verses. Are you growing in your Christian life? Not are you perfect, not do you never sin. All of us do. But can you see progress from when you first came to Christ? Can you see in your life evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Or are you bringing forth thorns and thistles? That is how we know if God is at work in our life. But it begs the question, uh, how do we bear good fruit? Uh, how can we ensure that we are not the kind of people who Hebrews is warning about in these verses? How can we ensure that we are not the kind of people who sin willfully, who sin deliberately, who sin consistently, who are at heart traitors against God? How can we ensure that we are not those sorts of people? Because I'm sure if any of us searched our hearts, we know that we all have that tendency within us, that desire for sin, that desire to do what we want to do and not what God wants to do. So how can we avoid that? How can we steer clear of this dangerous path that Hebrews warns against? Well, fortunately, we're given three uh, instructions. Three instructions in this passage. I don't know if you noticed... Uh, in verses 22 to 25, 
the author of Hebrews mentions a phrase three times. He says, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. And the author of Hebrews gives us three instructions which if we follow, we will be kept from a path which ends up in treachery against God. Of course, the ultimate answer is the way you bear good fruit is by being born again. That's true, that's definitely the theological answer. Um, But that's not necessarily particularly helpful in everyday life. Um, How can you decide right at this moment that you are born again? Fortunately, that's not where the Bible leaves it. Uh, The Bible gives us instruction. He tells us, God tells us what we should do. Uh, It's like Peter walking on the water. I know I use this illustration a lot, but I think it's a helpful one. Uh, Do you remember Peter in that boat? And uh, God, uh, Christ instructs him, come to me. Come to me on the water. But Peter didn't stay in the boat worrying about whether he had the power to do that or not. He didn't sit there praying, waiting for some sort of inner conviction that Christ had given him the power to walk on water. He didn't worry about that. He had Christ's command. He had Christ's instruction, and that was enough. All he had to do was get out of the boat to obey the instruction. And it's the same for us. We do need to be born again. But the evidence that we are born again is that we obey the instructions that Christ gives us. Come to me. Come to me, and those who come to me, I will in no, by no means cast out. Don't worry, in a sense, about what God is doing in that sense. Listen to what God says and obey him. So let's look at these three let us statements so that we can obey what God instructs us to do. And as I say, there's three of them. The first one's in verse 22. The second one is in verse 23. And the third one is in verses 24 to 25. And these are the three instructions Hebrews gives us that we might avoid sinning willfully. So let's look at verse 22. In verse 22, Hebrews writes, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, This follows what Hebrews has been teaching us all about how Christ is a great high priest. You might remember uh, last week, if you were here, how we saw how Christ's blood is more precious than the blood of bulls and goats. Uh, We read at the beginning of this chapter, that in verse 4, that it's not possible for the blood of a bull or a goat to take away sin. But Christ's blood can. That blood of bulls and goats wasn't able to make the way clear to God. But Christ was sufficient. He is sufficient. And now Christ has removed all the obstacles between us and God. Chiefest of being our sin. Our sin, which is this great hurdle to knowing God. The evil heart that we have 
by Christ's death on the cross, that has been moved out the way, which allows us to draw near. That's why Hebrews says in verse 22, or I'll read from verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, Christ has ripped away the curtain to the holy of holies. You remember how when he died on the cross, uh, that the temple curtain to the holiest place had been ripped from top to bottom. God had made the way, Christ had made the way clear. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Nothing needs to stop us approaching God. Christ says, come, come boldly, come joyfully. God will welcome you willingly because Christ has made the way clear. There is nothing stopping us. Whoever we are this evening, we can all come to God. Like Peter in that boat, Christ says to us, come. It might seem impossible. You might say your sins are too great. You might say you've done too much bad. Peter might have said, that water is too deep. My body's too heavy. But Christ says, come. Because he's made the way open. That's the first instruction. Draw near. Draw near to God. Don't worry in that sense about your sin. Our sin has been dealt with. Our sin is serious, yes. Our sin will take us to hell if we don't come to Christ. But it should not prevent us coming to Christ. He came to deal with precisely that. So that's the first instruction. The first way we avoid being the type of people that Hebrews warns against in this chapter. Draw near to God because Christ has made the way clear. But let's move to 23 where he gives a second instruction. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is, if you you like, the next step. Uh, He says, come, draw near, but he says, keep going. Don't draw back. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Uh, Again, you might remember Peter on the water. That's what he did, wasn't it? Uh, He was walking on the water before walking towards Christ, and it was all going well. While he had his eyes fixed on Christ, as he was drawing near, he could walk on the water. But then he looked around. He saw the wind, or he felt the wind, and he saw the waves, and he started to fear. He started to doubt. He looked around, and he started to sink. Hebrews says, don't do that. uh, Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, I've heard many people say uh, over the years that they're reluctant to become a believer uh, because they're afraid they won't be able to keep it up. I'm sure you've probably heard similar. And they say, I just don't think I'll be able to manage that for any length of time, maybe for a little while, but then I'll fall away. But Hebrew says, don't worry about that because he who promised is faithful. Uh, Sometimes a parent might tell their four-year-old child to hold their hand, perhaps when they're crossing a road or they're walking by a river. But that child's safety does not depend 
upon that child's grip of their parents' hand. If it did, they would not be very secure because a four-year-old's hand isn't very strong. That child's security depends upon the strength of their father or of their mother and their grip on them. And it's exactly the same with us. God says to us, Christ says to us, put your hand in mine. But our security does not depend upon our ability to grip of him, keep a grip of him. It depends ultimately on his ability to keep a grip of us. And he is faithful. He will not let us fall away. Jesus himself said that, didn't he? He said, those who my father gives me will come to me. And no one will pluck them from my father's hand. Keep your eyes on Christ because he will never take his eyes off you. We are secure in Christ. So that's the second instruction. Hold fast to Christ without doubting. Do not be afraid. He will hold on to you. But thirdly and lastly, uh, in verse 24, Hebrews gives us the final instruction. He says, verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In these verses, Hebrews makes clear that we all have a responsibility to each other to help one another not drift away. Um, Often in the Bible, the church is described as the body of Christ. And often, God will use his church as his hand. God's church is the means by which God prevents us going down dangerous paths and drifting, sliding away from him. I'm sure many people here can point to times in their life where they were going down a dangerous path, a path away from Christ, a path away from God. And someone warned them, perhaps a parent, perhaps a sibling, perhaps a friend, and they warned them, and you you heeded their warning. That's one of the means God uses to discipline us, to keep us, to keep his grip on us. We can't just simply say, well, God keeps us, therefore we don't need to do anything. God often keeps us by using us. He will use your words to another believer to keep them. He will use your good example as a means to keep others of his children. It's tragic, isn't it, Uh, that so many People who call themselves Christians uh, have such a low view of uh, meeting together with other believers. Uh, Now, obviously, you're all here this evening, and that is a good thing. Uh, But, of course, I'm sure we all know of people um, who could be here, but they're not, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, There's lots of legitimate reasons, but there's plenty of not legitimate reasons too. And tragically, so many just don't see the value. They don't see the need 
of us consistently meeting together and stirring one another up and keeping one another accountable. These verses say it's essential. I uh, heard uh, of one man who refused to attend church. He claimed to be a Christian, but he would not go to church. And um, the pastor of the church that he very infrequently attended came to him and he asked him why. Why do you not come to the church more regularly? And the man responded, I don't go to church because every time I do, they throw something at me. And the pastor asked him to explain. And he said, well, when I was just a baby, my parents took me to church and the minister threw water on me. Clearly it wasn't a Baptist church. And then when I got married, the wedding ceremony took place in our church and they threw confetti at me. And hearing this, the pastor quickly responded, well, if you don't start going to church soon, the next time you do, I'm afraid they'll throw dirt on you at his funeral. And you see, that attitude is the attitude of so many. They come to church for christenings. They come to church for marriages. They come to church for funerals, perhaps even at Easter and at Christmas. But they don't understand what the purpose of church is. It's not a ritual we go through. God isn't pleased simply to see us sitting in the pew or on the seat. That's not the point. The point is, as these verses say, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we should be exhorting one another encouraging one another, teaching one another, helping one another. We all have problems. We all have difficulties. We all need support in different ways. And one of the ways that we can show support to one another is by coming together once a week, twice a week, more often. That is what these verses are saying. Do not neglect the importance of meeting with other believers do you remember when peter again was walking on the water and he looked around and he got scared he heard the wind he saw the waves and he started to sink do you know what happened next jesus reached out his hand and grabbed peter and stopped him sinking we can be that hand to other believers we can be that hand and we can reach out through God's strength, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can prevent another believer sinking. I don't know what's going on in the hearts of everyone here this evening. Perhaps there might be people here right now who are sinking, who are doubting, who are fearing. We can help. We can help one another if we don't resist one another, if we heed this warning and if we consider one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. Just to quote one more verse, or a couple of verses from later on in the book of Hebrews. And no doubt we'll look at these verses in more detail in weeks to come, God willing. But in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, the author says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see how they tie together? The holiness without which no man will see the Lord is tied to us strengthening the weak knees, helping those who need help within the church. This is how God increasingly makes us more like Christ. So in closing, uh, how do we avoid being the kind of people who Hebrews warns about in this chapter? Well, firstly, we draw near to Christ in faith because of what he has done for us. Secondly, we hold fast to him without doubting because his grip will remain firm on us. And lastly, we consider one another. We are watchful of one another to see if anyone is sinking and we reach out in God's strength to help them. And with those thoughts, uh, I've chosen as our final hymn, a hymn which is really a prayer. And it's a very appropriate prayer to pray in light of what we've heard. Uh, It's number 803. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by many a foe, that will not tremble on the brink of poverty or woe. And the last verse particularly. Lord, give me such a faith as this, and then whate'er may come, I taste e'en now the hallowed bliss of an eternal home. So let's stand to sing in closing number 803.